0: Welcome back to the Fullcast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. I'm thrilled to be talking about the brilliant film, Clute, by one of my favorite directors, Alan J. Pakula. He famously is the director of what has come to be referred to as the Paranoia Trilogy, which begins with this film, Clute, which stars Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda, is followed by The Parallax View, starring Warren Beatty, and concludes with All the President's Men, of course, starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, Jason Robards, and many others. This was not an intended, quote-unquote, paranoia trilogy by Alan Pakula, but it ended up being a sequence of films which spoke to his interests at the time, covering a very specific period of his career and a very specific period of American filmmaking. And there are three of the most fascinating, important, and amazing films of the era. Now, Clute itself is not a film that I've had a long history with the way I do with other films of the 70s and even other Alan Pakula films like All the President's Men, which is probably one of my top three favorite films. And I've been thinking about why I had this disconnect for some time. I think it has to do with the title to be so shallowly obvious. But I know it sounds silly, But I'm kind of reminded when I think of this title for this film, Clute, which refers to the Donald Sutherland character. It doesn't refer to the Jane Fonda character who's named Brie Daniels. Now, I think in my subconsciousness, somehow I was aware of that, or I thought that the name Clute was the name of the Jane Fonda character which seemed strange. Um, I'm not sure what it was, but there is a disconnect in the title. I would almost go to say it's not a great title for what is a great film. I, I was kind of reminded, and you'll have to excuse this complete flight of perhaps unrelated fancy, but you know, I'm, I'm reminded of some of the adages I've learned over the years having to do with writing and particularly comedic writing, the writing of jokes, which is, Typically, if you lose your audience in your setup for one microsecond, your joke won't work, unless, of course, losing it for that second or even for several minutes is part of the joke. You might be reminded of Norm MacDonald's brilliant moth joke on the Conan O'Brien show in May of 2014.
1: I'm sitting with Norm MacDonald and... Now, not all your material comes uh, from, the, from the news, is that right? You know, no, you, some you... of my material comes, my strongest material comes from real life. Real life? Like, for instance, today, I was driving in a, a car, mm-hmm. you were kind enough to bring a car to bring this old chunk of coal here to the studio. <laughs> we, send, we send cars for our guests, yes? Yeah, so I got in it, and that's, I, you know, I get material that way, so my driver... What do you mean? What, what, how do you get material that way? You get in the car, and what happens? Uh, my driver tells me a joke. <laughs> The driver we sent to pick you up told you a joke. Yeah. And you're going to tell it now on the show. Yeah, that's how I get a lot of my material. <laughs> okay. Why don't we just have him on next time? Oh, uh, that know. guy. Yeah, no, that guy. No, wait till you hear me do it. <laughs> so the guy, is, he goes. Uh, uh-huh. he, uh, I say, uh, I'll be the guy. Okay. Uh, a moth. <laughs> a moth goes into a podiatrist's office. A moth goes into a podiatrist's office. You are correct. a moth goes into a podiatrist's office Mm -hmm. and uh, the podiatrist's office says what's the problem and the moth says what's the problem where do I begin man he goes I go to work for uh Gregory Alinovich and uh, all day long I work
0: (laughs) Now, I'm going to stop that there, even though you'd probably want me to play the entire four and a half minutes of the moth joke, but it occurs to me I'm probably going to do an entire moth joke episode, because this is one of the great talk show moments in talk show history. It's one of the great comedic joke moments in talk show history, and it's got a really funny backstory, and Norm MacDonald is, of course, a comedic genius. Now, what does this have to do with Clute? Nothing, except that in this instance, misdirection is entirely the point. Norm is telling what's known as a shaggy dog story. And he's going to go on and do it better than anyone ever has or will ever again. But in the terms of the film Clute, I don't know why I was thrown by this title. And when you watch the film, you do meet the character of John Clute fairly right off the beginning. And I guess if you were watching this for the first time... You might be forgiven for thinking you're going to follow the character of John Clute, like you might follow a detective character in any neo-noir film of its type or era. But that's not what's going to happen, and that's part of the particular genius and charm of the intelligence of Alan Pakula films. So it's, it's not the, the, the Sutherland detective story. Um, and to Donald Sutherland's credit, I have to say, I'm not going to say he quote unquote allowed it not to be his film because it's not up to him per se. And the screenplay such as it was, which is very different from the finished film, by the way, I did read the screenplay, which was written by two brothers who were largely one of them was a television writer. And I believe this is his only feature film credit, but the work that Alan Pakula did with his cast in rehearsal, I think had a lot to do with shaping the film that we ended up with on the screen. But, you know, we're, re- we're realists here. We understand that movie stars jockey for position and some might press for their role to be expanded or to have specific scenes uh, focus on their character as opposed to their co-star but in everything that you read and hear about the making of this film, and the absolute respect that Alan Pakula was held in by everyone who worked with him on both sides of the line, from technicians like Gordon Willis, to his editing staff, to his production designers, costumers, screenwriting partners, and certainly his actors and very, very certainly the female actors that he worked with, they had great respect for him and they allowed themselves to trust him and guide them to performances which create a work of art in a film as opposed to a showcase for any particular actor. So honestly, the title threw me, I think, over the years until I really learned about Alan Pakula and really started to watch the film with an appreciation for how... It's really one of the greatest films of the 70s. And it's one of the most brilliantly photographed films of the 70s. It reminds me a lot, in a way, of two people I have realized through doing this podcast are probably two of my absolute very favorite film directors. And that's Alan Pakula and Sidney Lumet. And I think it's because I've learned that as directors, for various reasons, different reasons— they were somewhat out of step with their times at times. If you consider Sidney Lumet, he directed feature films from 1957 to 2007. That's 50 years. And he did TV before 1957. Pakula directed features from 1969 to 1997, before his tragic and untimely death in 1998. But Pakula famously didn't become a director until he was 40. And I think that has a lot to do with the success he had during his career. Now, I want to get his untimely death out of the way because it's part of the tragic story of Alan Pakula, who I think would have continued to grow in stature as a filmmaker had he lived. Certainly films like All the President's Men, Parallax View, Clute, on and on, are going to live forever as some of the greatest films ever made in this era. And films like Sophie's Choice, starring Meryl Streep, um, Presumed Innocent with Harrison Ford, a lot of interesting films that he made. But his death was, was a tragic accident, which is almost It's so jarring. There's a great documentary about Pakula that I highly recommend. I think it's called Alan Pakula Going for Truth. It's a very loving documentary. You learn a lot of information about him that's really important to understanding his process as a filmmaker, his lack of pretension, his lack of considering himself an auteur. And in a way, his death is so senseless and so happenstance that it's trite to say that it's something that could be in one of his films, a film like The Parallax View, where you impart sinister underpinnings to some sort of an accident. But this was just a stupid accident. What happened was on November 19th, 1998, Pakula was driving, I believe, a Volvo station wagon on Long Island Expressway. He was heading from his home in New York City to his country house in the Hamptons when a driver in front of him hit a metal pipe that had fallen onto the highway. The metal pipe flew into the air, crashed through Pakula's windshield and struck him in the head. He swerved off the road into a fence and he was pronounced dead at North Shore University Hospital. It's it's such an inappropriate and shocking end for a life that was still vital settled, and doing great work. And you think about actors that loved working with him that are still around, like Julia Roberts or Harrison Ford, Brad Pitt. It would have been interesting to see what would have become of Alan Pakula. I want to play you a little couple things about Pakula talking so you can gain an understanding of this great filmmaker. Here's a little bit of him talking about his philosophy of egos on film sets, which is, which is one of the most important things I think you can listen to here and understand about the man.
2: But there are two sets of egos you've got to preserve, and they're both very difficult to preserve in the making of the film. And one is the egos of the people you're working with, and the other is your own. And sometimes they seem quite incompatible as goals. Now, this depends on what you want from people and the kind of work you want. I don't want puppets and actors. I don't want puppets and anybody. I don't want to work with anybody who I don't feel has like something to give. So the first thing I try to do is to make them know that their ideas are welcome in terms of the visual people and the sound people, the art director, and the costume people, and then let them come with their ideas. And if the ideas are lousy, you don't take away their sense of themselves. The great danger is... People will do safe work. You just have to give them the chance, fearlessness, to be outrageous. Try to keep a very loose atmosphere in that way.
0: Now, I don't know. Now that, my God, if you could distill that into a working principle for your efforts as any type of a creative person who has to work with other people, I don't think you could do better in terms of a foundational philosophy. Because... It's so easy, as he says, for groups of creative people working together to fall into a good enough mentality or a, a lazy mentality, a let's just do what pleases everyone mentality. It's much more risky to have an environment where people feel empowered to offer their ideas. And it actually, it doesn't disempower the director it empowers the director to learn the language of dealing with creative people's ideas. I think that's brilliant. Another tenet of Pakula's approach is rehearsal. Much like we talked with Norman Jewison in our episode about um, Moonstruck, where it had this, multiple-week period of intensive rehearsal prior to filming, much like Sidney Lumet, who had a period of rehearsal prior to filming The Verdict. This is something that Pakula always did with his actors. And pointedly, and to what I was talking about before, in terms of understanding that the most vulnerable people that you require to remain vulnerable on your film set are the actors, They're the ones who are sharing of themselves in a manner that is so awkward and uncomfortable for 99.9% of us to imagine even doing that you have to foster an environment where they can take risks and try things and not be doing it in front of 60 or 70 people on a film crew. So here's Pakula talking a little bit about his rehearsal philosophy.
3: Fella, you don't know what this story means.
2: I love rehearsing. I rehearsed Sterile Cuckoo for four weeks, I rehearsed Love and Pain for three weeks, I rehearsed Cloop for three weeks. Now, when I rehearse, in the first rehearsal, before a film starts, I only rehearse with the actors, myself, and the script supervisor, there to take notes. And then when we start to shoot it, I throw the whole crew off the set. Everybody except the script supervisor and the actors and myself and maybe an assistant director at the door to keep everybody out. I mean, there are more poker games that go out in my pictures. Well, I just want the actors to not be afraid to expose themselves to try ridiculous things, to make fools of themselves. And when we have that basically worked out, I bring the cameraman in. And then I'll go with the cameraman, and we'll run the scene for the cameraman and myself, and the actors on the scene several times. We'll work out the changes from what the original design was that we had in mind. Oh, talk about improvisation. There were a few major changes along the way. For example... Hume Cronin called me and he said, I'm in town, Allen, and it's Friday, and I work on Monday. And the script I read, uh, I played a police chief. He told me a couple of weeks ago when I thought I was going to be a newspaper editor and uh, just wanted to know if you settle on which I'm going to doing or not. I said, Well, yeah, you're going to be a newspaper editor. And he said, To you, it'd be nice to see some pages.
0: So, anyway, he's starting to talk about Parallax View there, which we need to get into. I may do that on the podcast in the coming weeks because. I'm kind of in a Pakula moment here that I I may want to keep going. But, you know, that philosophy of working with actors is absolutely borne out in the films that we're talking about here. And certainly in a film like Sophie's Choice, which features this incredible performance by an incredible artist in Meryl Streep. And again, similar to Clute, where you have Donald Sutherland, already an established presence, and Jane Fonda, already a star at the time of the filming of the movie Clute. But you have them making the appropriate space for each other based on what's best for the film, not what's best for them. And I think Pakula's track record (laughs) speaks for itself. You think about the first film that he made... um, got Liza Minnelli an Oscar nomination. And as to Lumet and Pakula, they both at times get a little bit left out of some of the cinematic conversations about who the best directors of their eras are, and I think wrongly so, and for kind of the same reason. Let's back up a little bit. Case in point here, despite writing and directing in a producing resume for Pakula that includes the films Clute, The Parallax View, All the President's Men. Sophie's Choice, Presumed Innocent. He was only ever nominated for three Academy Awards. And one of them is for a film he didn't direct. He actually produced To Kill a Mockingbird in 1963. That's how he got his start in the film business. He was the producing partner of Robert Mulligan, who was a director. And he said in an interview That he probably delayed his directing career by 10 or 12 years because he was enjoying the process of this collaboration that he had with Mulligan so much that he didn't direct his first film until he was 40. He was also nominated for a Oscar in 1977 as Best Director for All the President's Men. And in 1983, for Best Adapted Screenplay for Sophie's Choice. (laughs) But it's crazy that he never won a Best Director Oscar. To me personally, it's crazy that he lost to John Avildsen for Rocky in 1977. The category that year was populated with incredible films like Taxi Driver, All the President's Men. I mean, as Soderbergh says in one of the commentaries, uh, I'm sorry, in the documentary about Hakula. He says, listen, I don't have anything against Rocky. It's a great example of what it is. But the idea that all the president's men is not possibly the best example of a director working in the medium in the 70s with material relevant to the real everyday lives of Americans at the time is just kind of crazy. And it drives certain people like me crazy that that was not rewarded as it should have been. But Pakula directed eight different actors in Oscar-nominated performances, which I think is the mark of a great director. Not personal accomplishments, let's say, but allowing other people to be great. Those eight actors are Jane Fonda, Liza Minnelli, Jason Robards, Jane Alexander, Richard Farnsworth, Jill Clayburgh, Candace Bergen, and Meryl Streep. Fonda, Robards, and Streep all won Oscars for their performance in one of Pakula's movies. And if you think about Sidney Lumet, of course, he's working for 50 years as opposed to the shorter time frame of Pakula. Sidney Lumet directed 17 different actors in Oscar-nominated performances. And here's the list. Catherine Hepburn, Rod Steiger, Al Pacino, Ingrid Bergman, Albert Finney, Chris Sarandon, Faye Dunaway, Peter Finch, Beatrice Strait, Bill Holden, Ned Beatty, Peter Firth, Richard Burton, Paul Newman, James Mason, Jane Fonda, and River Phoenix. And of those, Bergman, Dunaway, Finch, and Beatrice Strait won Oscars for their performances in one of Lumet's films. Sidney Lumet himself also never won a Best Director Oscar. Now, Alan Pakula Um. Well, sorry, I just want to finish with Lumet. Lumet was nominated for Best Director for both, uh, for the films 12 Angry Men in 1957, Dog Day Afternoon in 75, Network in 76, and The Verdict in 82. So having never won an individual Academy Award, the Academy finally um, gave him an honorary award, and 14 of his films were nominated for various Oscars. Now, if you think about the films made by these two directors and the fact that they never personally won a Best Director Oscar, one of the reasons posited in the Pakula documentary, and I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but I think it is important. One of the reasons is that at the time that these directors were doing their best work, we had the rise of the auteur theory in film criticism. And it's not that film criticism and awards are necessarily related, but there is a crossover, and the way in which directors were thought of, particularly in the 70s, changed. In the American directors who gained justifiable attention for the quote-unquote brand of themselves and their filmmaking, at the same time that people like Pakula and Lumet were plying their trades, you had directors like Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, Stanley Kubrick, Francis Ford Coppola, Spielberg, De Palma, Friedkin, even Hitchcock. These were filmmakers who were getting a lot more ink and a lot more attention because why? They're artists. They're auteurs. They're writer-directors. And in the conventional wisdom of Hollywood at the time, it hurt someone like Lumet. It hurt his chances that he worked a lot and that he made a lot of films, even though most of them were very good to great. But he was viewed, and to some extent is still viewed. I've read this criticism of him recently. He's viewed as a, quote, workmanlike director, which is such bullshit. And Pakula, despite maybe a couple late career misses, you know, like Sidney Lumet, he wasn't a pontificator. He wasn't pretentious. Nor was he a professional Italian like Francis Ford Coppola, who certainly used his persona to get what he wanted financially, creatively. You know, Pakula was a New Yorker of the middle and upper middle classes. He was a society person of sorts. When you look at the documentary and you see the apartments that he lived in, he's living a very, you know, upper west side, upper east side of New York City existence. He's making films that are incredibly important, but he doesn't take himself that importantly. And both of these directors are people who we think of eschewing showy camera movements for the sake of showy camera movements. But even that criticism of their directing is, I think, totally not fair because these films contain just as many, if not more, incredible shots and framings. And you can check out our episode on the verdict for all the incredible directorial choices made in that film that Kira and I select. Uh, certainly the parallax view. I mean, you could pull frames from the parallax view, frame them, put them on the wall. They look like art. Clute, uh, though, is probably Pakula's most visually stunning picture. And, and I say that as a true devotee of all the President's Men, which I just watched again last night. But Clute, which is the first film that Pakula worked with Gordon Willis, famed cinematographer of the Godfather films, and so much more, um, Gordon Willis and Pakula would work on these three films together. Clute, The Parallax View, and All the President's Men. And Gordon Willis's work in these films is absolutely stunning. And it's absolutely a part of what you heard Pakula say about working with his collaborators. and That's why I think it's really unfair for these two directors not to be considered. Frankly, these two directors made so many more and better films than someone like Coppola. I know that on the podcast you've probably heard me tipping over into – I wouldn't say anti-Coppola, because he has to be reckoned with as the force that he was. But his output, aside from The Godfather, doesn't live up to his reputation. And yes, I include the hot take that Apocalypse Now is not a great film. It's certainly a curiosity of epic proportions, and it has vibe through uh through the kneecaps. I don't know, I just made that phrase up. But as you can hear in my episode that I did about some of these Vietnam era films of the time, it's it's not the best of those films, and there are others that do things a lot better. But that's for me and my own personal opinions. But this auteur theory Um, I think, hurt both of these guys because they were not that style of director. And there's a a great film historian who's quoted in the Pakula documentary named Annette Insdorf. And she talks a lot about this, where recognizability of a filmmaker's output became the key factor that allowed this entire industry of people writing and thinking about film to treat it seriously, academically. Because before, it wasn't really considered that seriously. So it elevated directors who did have these recognizable styles. You know, European directors like Truffaut and Goddard. And it kind of left out filmmakers like Sidney Lumet and Alan Pakula, who didn't really care about being seen as an auteur. Steven Soderbergh says he focused on his work as opposed to his brand. And if you think about other films of the era that cover similar... Territory and Information, like Three Days of the Condor or Manchurian Candidate, those are lesser films by a lot compared to the ones that Pakula made. So I think Pakula made both artistic and iconic films in one of the greatest eras of Hollywood filmmaking in the 70s. You know, he made a film like All the President's Men, which is truly a work of filmic art in every respect— But he could also just as capably make an incredibly high-quality, crowd-pleasing thriller like Presumed Innocent. Um, He worked with big stars. He worked with stars that other perhaps lesser directors or lesser understanders of human and actor behavior would have problems with. People like Dustin Hoffman, his process could infuriate producers and other actors and directors. He had... Famously, a relentless need to talk it all out, take wide expository explanations, only to arrive at, it must be said, something often brilliant, as the director Ed Zwick notes in his really readable new memoir, uh, which is out now. I highly recommend that. It's called Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions. Redford could drive directors and his fellow actors like Paul Newman absolutely crazy by being continually late, which is one of the most, almost one of the biggest sins you can commit on a film set to hear people who appreciate being on time uh, comment on. And Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford have been noted for what really comes down to just caring about their character, the movie, uh, and advocating for the films. But none of these people have anything negative to say about Pakula. And so... There's a producer in the documentary that says that he learned about working with various directors, that these directors think of and see movies differently. He said that Mike Nichols thought about a movie in terms of scenes. This is a great scene for these actors. This is a great scene. But Pakula thought in terms of great performances. He believed that audiences will always come out to see a great performance. And if you think of his films... They really all tilt towards a single great performance, even though they feel like ensembles. So it's not to say that Kevin Klein is an extraordinary in Sophie's Choice. It's to say that Meryl Streep was enabled and helped and supported to turn in really one of the greatest performances ever on film. It's to say that Jane Fonda include a film not even named for her character, was allowed, encouraged, and supported to turn in another Oscar-winning performance. And it's to say that Robert Redford, even though, interestingly, when I watched All the President's Men last night, one of the great things about watching films over and over again is you always see new things that you weren't necessarily paying attention to. I'd never seen this before. I don't know if we mentioned this when we did All the President's Men on the podcast. But the title card, which usually would say something like an Alan J. Pacula film, an Alan J. Pakula film. The director gets that card. Well, on All the President's Men, it says a Robert Redford and Alan J. Pakula film. That's because Redford was producing All the President's Men. But it's an indication of what a director has to deal with when you think of just that simple title card. It's a Robert Redford and Alan Pakula film. Like, that's the director title card. Why is Redford's name there? I don't know. But really, All the President's Men, it's really Redford's character. I mean, it's Woodward who we primarily follow the story through. Again, with even a brilliant and mercurial actor like Dustin Hoffman, who is, he's not supporting, he's as intrinsic to what's unfolding in All the President's Men as Redford's character is but it's really Redford's story. And again, this is part of this balance that Pakula is able to um, set in motion on these films. Now, speaking of Clute, um, the film starts brilliantly with this incredible opening sequence that again is so easy to just observe uh, it starts with this uh-huh. this Thanksgiving dinner scene, but the first image we see is of this tiny recording device, which has no business being on this table. I don't think it is on the table, although it looks like it's on the Thanksgiving table. But this word, wordless scene of a family and their friends enjoying a Thanksgiving dinner is entirely imbued with the philosophy of the film we're about to see, because... They're in this glassed-in sort of room in this house, but it makes them seem like they're in a terrarium. They are on display. They are humans in a glass cube with plants around them and food on the table and this slow, brilliant pan across these characters that we're about to meet. And this brilliant sequence between the husband and wife toasting each other. And in just one of the great cuts of the 70s which is they toast each other, they look at each other lovingly and you can tell so much about them and then it just makes this cut to his empty chair and it's nighttime. you
3: know the subject, Thomas Grunemann?
0: Yes. The man is missing. Very well. He was my best friend. Uh, We
3: grew up together. Can you uh, account for his uh, disappearance in any way? Mrs. Grunemann? No. Did he, uh, recently appear to be agitated or, uh, depressed in any way? No. Now, Mr. Cable, at the plant, uh, did he voice any grievance or discontent about his work there? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, Tom operated best when he was under pressure. Please forgive me, Mrs. Grunelman, but, uh, I have to ask, did he, uh, your husband, did he ever show any, uh, uh, moral or sexual problems or peculiarities? No, no. Any marital problems in general?
4: We were very happy. Did
0: he- now, what's great about this is this mix of both kind of a, a realism, a documentary feel with the way the questioning is taking place. It's not heightened or theatrical. It's matter of fact. It feels true to life. But it's surrounded by actors who are performing. And it's this balance, which the film then always manages to keep. I've read and heard that it's such a brilliant mix of a melodrama, which is kind of what it is, and this kind of noir procedural film. And this is a balance that the movie keeps very, very uh, close to the, the surface in impressive ways, an impressive command of the material, which this is only Pakula's second film as a director. And I love the artistic choices. This is, again, where I just don't think he gets a lot of credit. This is not in the screenplay to see the start of the film where you have this recording device, which is going to be so important as the film goes forward. And it's going to add all of these artful layers of what we hear who's performing in a recorded sense. It has a lot of meta layers that you could really peel back, but they never get in the way of the narrative. But they're there if you start to think about them, which is what I think is brilliant. And in fact, when we first encounter Brie Daniels, the Jane Fonda character, it's going to be in a recording. We're going to hear her voice in a recording that we don't yet know how or why this recording was made or why we're listening to it. But in the recording, she's performing, she's in character as Brie Daniels, the prostitute. And it's part of what is genius about um, the film. And as we get into the title sequence and some of this great music composed for the film, We're going to hear her. And we see the tape recorder again. Now it's just in the black background of the title sequence. And the hand, we don't know who it belongs to.
5: Has anybody um, talked to you about the financial arrangements? Well, it depends naturally on how long you want me for and, and what you want to do. Very nice. Um, well, I'd like to spend the, the evening with you if it's, if you'd like that. <laughs> have you ever been with a woman before paying her? Do you like it? I mean, I have a feeling that that turns you on very particularly. What turns me on is because I have a, a good imagination and I like pleasing. Do you mind if I take my sweater off? I think in the confines of one's house, one should be free of clothing and inhibitions. And oh, inhibitions are always nice because they're so nice to overcome. <laughs> don't be afraid. I'm not. As long as you don't uh, hurt me more than I like to be hurt. I will do anything you ask. You should never be ashamed of things like that. I mean, you mustn't be... You know, there's nothing wrong. Nothing, nothing is wrong. I think the only way that any of us can ever be happy is to, is to let it all hang out, you know, do it all and fuck it.
0: It's such a great sequence and it introduces so many themes in the film in a brilliant way. And then we see Brie Daniels the first time in this model cattle call, which is just a brilliantly staged sequence where these women are being ruthlessly assessed in their own presence for how they fail to live up to the expectations that the casting directors have. It's such a smart way, again, to use things that are slightly off kilter in a manner to make the larger point visually without having to sort of hit the nail on the head. And it's interesting to contemplate here, I think, as we have to do, where Jane Fonda was in her career at this time. She's only two years removed from playing Barbarella, which was directed by her then-husband, Roger Vadim. And she's talked a lot in her autobiography about her discomfort at that time, Because Vadim was drinking a lot. Um, It's a very sexual film. She, by her own admission, was bulimic at the time. She had a lot of issues pertaining to her body. And here she is playing, quote, a scantily clad, sometimes naked sexual heroine. And there was a gulf between how she felt about herself and what the character required and the insecurity that she felt. Um, so that she didn't enjoy shooting it and she didn't enjoy, um, much of the experience. And to think that two years later, she is in this film Clute, which is such a forward thinking film for its time, you know, it's, it gives Brie Daniels center stage in all her complexity and it occurs to me, looking at that sequence where we're listening to the film over the title credits, there's a close-up of the spinning reels of the small micro recorder, and the reels and the holes in the film reels themselves resemble nothing so much as a revolver's chamber of bullets, because part of the thing that's complexly empowering about Clute is that Brie Daniels isn't destroyed by outside forces as much as she's doing this to herself. And in other words, they're not explicitly putting forward how she ended up as a prostitute, where she's so clearly intelligent and talented. There's a pointed scene where she's doing an audition because she wants to be an actor and she's, she's a good actor and that's a really important part of the film to be aware of. After this audition scene So
3: I guess it's conceivable that
0: um, the cops are talking and Bree Daniels her. has been rejected.
5: Hey Trina Bree. Yeah, listen, I could use a quick fifty. You got a commuter for me? Terrific.
4: Yeah. Right. Terrific,
0: yeah. Bye. So what's great here is, you know, she was on this casting cattle call and she was rejected. But part of what fuels her is that she has the ability to assert her power by lining up a trick at a hotel, as she just did on the telephone, and being in control, whereas as an actor, she's not in control. And much like we heard that sort of fake bullshit spiel in the recording over the title sequence, here we're going to see it in person ask, as she I'm talks to her John. Glad in to know the hotel. you,
2: Brit. I'm glad you could come. Sit down, please. Um uh, Can I get you a drink?
5: Yeah, I'd like a ginger ale. Thank you.
2: That would be nice. I'm from Chicago. <clears throat> you come to New York often? Often? No, I don't come to New York too often. Uh-huh. It's too bad. Three
5: times a year, maybe. What kind of party would you have in mind? We could, uh... We could have a nice half-and-half half party for 50.
3: Hmm?
5: We could have a good time for 50. Or if you wanted
2: something extra, it would be a little more.
5: Um, yeah, I have, uh, maybe a nice,
3: listen, would it be all right
5: uh, tell me what you want, tell me, tell me, tell me what you
2: want,
4: oh, what? Uh... Oh, that's so exciting, but it's going to cost you more. That's
5: fantastic. That's going to be 100 Sure, fine. Yeah. Oh, yes. Very good. hundred. Very good.
4: Mm, I like to get business out of the way at the beginning. That way we don't have to think about it. Then we can just have a good time.
0: See, it's all a hustle. Right? It's all a scam. It's all a psychological game. She's the master of this game. And she's really good at it, but it's also destroying her at the same time. That's part of the genius of her performance in this film. Now, Pakula did a lot of research, of course, uh, preparing for this process. Here's a funny interview he did with... Um, Dick Cavett about preparing to talk to actual prostitutes and people in this life uh, in advance of filming this movie.
2: I'm in Hollywood. But you, you, uh, you used a real prostitute, or at least one of the people in our business who admits to being one. I, when I started... Uh... <laughs> When uh, uh, Yes, a less expensively paid one, yes. Uh, when I started uh, doing Include, I said I was looking for prostitutes to, for research. And it's amazing how many people at that studio came up and said, I happen to know somebody through a friend of a friend of a friend of mine. And I had this huge list to go through.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: The girl we used, one of the girls we used, was very bright and very helpful, except she was very odd and unstable in her own way. And she gave the wildest excuse for being late I've ever had. She came into my office an hour and a half late for an appointment and said, I'm sorry, but I lost my contact lens on Sixth Avenue and I've been on my knees on Sixth Avenue for half an hour. The image of her on her knees on Sixth Avenue for half an
0: hour, I don't know how much money she picked up, but the name, the word. So this is a slightly awkward talk show moment and conversation that I'm kind of fascinated by. I don't know why. He talked more about Clude in this great 1974 interview that I played a little bit of before.
2: Well, there are many difficulties in doing Clude. It's a melodrama and a character study at the same time. And the rhythms of melodrama and the rhythms of character studies are just totally different. The melodrama has a kind of inevitable, relentless rhythm. And a character study has a much more leisurely thing. So it was a balancing act. And what I wanted to do was to make the melodrama and her personal trauma and tragedy come together all at once. It was the story of a girl who is destroyed by her own compulsions. If she'd been an accidental victim, I don't think I would have been interested in, in making that film. But the fact that she has a compulsion to seduce that almost destroys her in the end. There was a very specific graphic design behind that whole picture. Clue was the beginning of a kind of a Baroque period for me. Parallax is more Baroque than Clute. I wanted to get a sense of a very claustrophobic world, and it was a fascinating movie when the first draft screenplay put sentiment, a sense of people caught in compulsions of which they have no control. And I wanted to get that sense of compression, and wanted to play with scale, as for example, to get an inhuman scale of people feeling trivial, of having lost a sense of their identity, which is the essence of the psychology of prostitution. For example, when Jane Fond is introduced in that film. She's introduced a row of models sitting in those little chairs. And I just said, let's get three huge fashion photographs, enormous, much bigger than they are, that has some kind of fantasy result, and that's what they want them for. And they're just tiny little doll objects there.
0: Again, the intelligence with the lack of pretense is something I think is a great joy to celebrate in all these films of Alan Pakula. Again, you're hearing someone who doesn't care about being seen as the auteur, the all-knowing hand, guiding all of these things. He doesn't even take credit for all of these things. But his genius was to really think about the story and to, as Soderbergh says, be probing and analytical without being pretentious. I think a lot of times you can get one or the other It's very rare to have all of those three things together. And um, Fonda, you know, man, I have such an appreciation for Jane Fonda as an actor after really jumping in and watching this film. I think she's 88 years old right now. She has been relevant in American society since the very early 60s. She hasn't always been popular. She has been the subject of extreme uh, criticism and rage for some of her statements and actions during the Vietnam War. But she's a fascinating and compelling and still relevant figure. You don't get to stick around and continue to be relevant in decade after decade after decade. You don't get to be present in that manner without truly being something special. And she's an icon. And it's amazing that if you listen to her talk now, she's so open and honest about aging and sexuality and love and things that have eluded her. Um, She's a feminist, first and foremost. And it was her feminism that caused her to almost uh, drop out of the film. Because she spent time with people in this life in preparation, and it kind of scared her off, and she tried to quit the film. Here's a little bit of her talking about being uncertain.
6: The late Alan Pakula offered me the role, and I said, I want to come to New York ten days early, and would you please arrange for me to spend a week with call girls and madams and pimps? And he did, and I did, and at the end of it, I asked for a meeting with him, and I said, Alan, I think I, I'm not right for this. You Fade on away. <laughs> Not once during that week, and I went to after-hours clubs and met the Johns and the whole, not once did any of those men even wink at me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, I, and, I, so, and Alan, you know, I really didn't, didn't think I could do it, and Alan just laughed me out of the room and told the story a lot after that. But so I started to really, re- okay. And then I remembered that I had known some very, very high-class call girls in France. And what had interested me about them was that they could have been any number of other things. They weren't just beautiful, they were intelligent enough to have led other kinds of lives. Hmm. Most of them had been sexually abused. And so that is how come they ended up earning their living, um, making a lot of money with their bodies and their sexuality. That kind of led me in, and Alan and I did a lot of work around all the psychological things that sexual abuse does to a female and a male. And I said to Alan, I said, you know, the one thing I'd like to change is she would never reveal herself to a male. In the script, it was a male psychiatrist. And, and I asked to have a woman play the part. And, and I think that was a right Just Alan got it right away. I made Clute at a time when I had left my husband, my first husband, who was a Frenchman. I had gone to India, I had become radicalized, I had come back, and I drove from LA to New York. I probably was arrested a dozen times along the way. And so I come in to clute with a sort of a, just the very early sprouts of feminism. And there's a few things that I did include that I don't think I would have done if I hadn't had, that wasn't beginning to grow in me. I think one of the most interesting scenes include is the scene at the very end when I'm listening to this guy. He plays the tape. I deliberately went into that scene without any preconception of how I wanted to do it. I'm good at listening, so I thought, I'm just gonna listen and see what happens. And what happened was not at all what I expected. About two weeks before was the scene where I'm taken to the morgue and I look through the pictures, and that came back to me, still does. <clears throat> and then I thought of all those women, those hundreds of women whose faces I had looked at who were beaten and killed out from misplaced anger that men carry. And I don't think I would have cried that way if I wasn't already becoming a feminist. I cried for women.
0: I mean, that's Jane Fonda. Wow, incredible. That's from two years ago, a talk she gave at the American Film Institute. <laughs> this is a person who is so intelligent and so smart about herself and about the growth of herself. I think it's incredible. Um, And this, the ability to say to Pakula, you know, I don't think she would talk openly to a male therapist and to have him immediately just switch something that was probably cast and probably planned for because he understood that not only was it probably right, but that his actor needed this in order to produce something truly special. And the therapy scenes in the film are one of the more extraordinary aspects of her acting. It's not acting. I mean, it's acting. But what we come to learn when we're following the film is that these moments of conversation between Brie Daniels and her now female therapist were not scripted out. They were bullet pointed, as many things in the film were, as that conversation you just heard before with the John. You know, that's bullet pointed out. They know the beats that they've got to go through. But you can hear in that hotel room conversation with the John, she asks him where he's from and he's talking at the same time. He's asking her if she wants a drink. There are moments where the two actors are not in sync the way they would be if they were simply reciting lines. And it creates this sense of realism. And similarly, in these therapy scenes, you know, Jane Fonda um, and... Pakula figured out how to film those at the end of the uh, the entire film uh, filming sequence. So what happened was they saved these. I think there's five scenes throughout the course of the film, five or six scenes, scenes where Brie Daniels is talking to her therapist, and as she's talking to her therapist it's kind of part of the melodrama because she's talking about her relationship with Clude and her relationship to her work and defending it, being defensive, being open, processing it in real time as the movie unfolds. And what they did was they saved the shooting of all of those sequences until, the very, until everything else in the film had been shot. And as Jane Fonda says, until she had completely internalized all of Brie Daniels, so that these conversations could have bullet points and they could just unfold. And the way in which they unfold is remarkable as a result. They feel realistic.
4: I'm not going to be able to come back anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. Because I just can't afford it. Did I fail you, Brie? Well, I mean, I've been coming here all this time and I've been paying you all this money and why do I still want a trick? Why do I still walk by a phone and want to pick up the phone and call? Did you think I had some magic potion? You'd come in and tell me what your problem was and I would just take it away? What's the difference between going out on a call as a model or as an actress or as a call girl? You're successful as a call girl. You're not because successful. Because when you're a call girl, you control it. That's why. Because... Someone wants you, not me. I mean, there are some Johns that I have regularly that want me, and that's terrific. But they want a woman, and I know I'm good, and I arrive at their hotel or their apartment, and they're usually nervous, which is fine because I'm not. I know what I'm doing. And for an hour, for an hour, I'm the best actress in the world. and the best fuck in the world. And... Why would you say you're the best actress in the world at that oh, time? Oh, because it's an act. That's what's nice about it. You don't have to feel anything. You don't have to care about anything. You don't have to like anybody. You just, uh... You just lead them by the ring in their nose in the direction that they think they want to go in. And you get a lot of money out of them in as short a period of time as possible. And, uh, and you control it and you call the shots. And I always feel just great afterwards. And you enjoyed it? No. Why not? You said there's nothing wrong with it. Why not, you said? Well, there's a difference. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, uh, Morally, I didn't enjoy it. Physically, I—I I came to enjoy it because it made me feel good. It made me feel like I wasn't alone. It made me feel uh, <sighs> that I had some control over myself. That I had some control over my life. That I—that uh, I could determine things for myself.
0: What's well, genius here? is in all of these scenes in the therapist's office, behind Brie Daniels, there are children's drawings. And to hear what we've heard before about Jane Fonda talking about understanding that all of these prostitutes and sex workers that she had encountered had had childhood sexual abuse in their personal histories. Well, the genius of the staging, the simple staging of these scenes because the camera's not moving, it's locked down. But the genius is that part of Brie Daniels' story, while not explicitly spoken by the character in these scenes, is represented by the fact that behind her are these colorful, childlike drawings that are tacked up on the therapist's wall. That's part of the attention to detail that you get here from this film that I think is so striking. One of the other things I wanted to single out about Pakula is, uh, I was mentioning Ed Zwick's book, the director Ed Zwick. He did My So-Called Life. Uh, He did that Tom Cruise Samurai movie, a lot of movies, a lot of big movies. And his book is really good. It's good because it's juicy in the sense that it has a lot of anecdotes about people like Brad Pitt um, and Tony Hopkins and other people. But it's good because it contains a lot of wisdom from some of the filmmakers that were his mentors, particularly Sidney Pollock. And I think it's Sidney Pollock that told Edswick, "Your movie is only going to be as good as the smallest actor in the smallest part is." And when you watch a film like Klute or All the President's Men, you can really appreciate the attention to casting, the smallest parts that Pakula paid. There's an anecdote in the Pakula documentary where Dustin Hoffman is one of the participants. And he says, there was a three-day period on the set of All the President's Men where they got word that, you know, we're not working today. And then we're not working the next day. And we're not working the third day. And Hoffman finally asks, what's going on? And he's told, oh, Alan is interviewing and casting all of the background people. The people who are going to have even non-speaking parts in the film. And he was meticulously going through them to make sure that everybody in the newsroom was right. That everyone they encountered in the hallways of the Justice Department was right. And you can watch for that and you can see it. And it's it's truly uh, quite extraordinary. And as I said, uh, Jane Fonda would win the Best Actress Oscar in this year, which is one of her most controversial years. You know, those arrests she was talking about, being extremely vocal about civil rights, about the Vietnam War. You know, We're Not Fonda, Hanoi, Jane. All of that stuff is going on. And she had a conversation with her father Henry Fonda and said you know if i win what should i say there's so so many things i could talk about here he, and he gave her the advice he said you could say something like there's a lot to say but now isn't the time to say it and just say thank you and when the time came and she won the tradition
3: of the academy Walter Matthau been- but last year's male winner presents the Oscar to this year's female winner. For reasons beyond our control, that is not possible tonight. <laughs> so speaking for myself, I confess that I cannot say that a Matisse is better than a Picasso, but this I do know. They are both products of struggle, training, and above all, very special gifts. And so, it is with the players nominated tonight. I read that line wrong. It's a great moment. And so it is with the players nominated tonight. <laughs> the line reading is so important. The best performance by an actress, the nominees are... Janet Sussman for Nicholas and Alexandra, a Horizon Pictures production, Columbia. Julie Christie for McCabe and Mrs. Miller, a Robert Altman, David Foster production, Warner Brothers. Jane Fonda for Clute, a Gus production, Warner Brothers. Glenda Jackson for Sunday, Bloody Sunday, a Joseph Janney production, United Artists. Vanessa Redgrave for Mary, Queen of Scots. Hal Wallace, Universal Pictures, limited production. May I have the envelope, please? The winner is Jane Fonda.
0: You know what we've lost in the Academy Awards, which I always try to do an Academy Awards recap show, which I will do this year? We've lost the may I have the envelope, please moment. That's such a good moment because as Mathaus talking there, this armed, not armed, but a guard comes out and has the envelope. Here's her speech.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much, members of the Academy, and thank all of you who applauded. There's a great deal to say, and I'm not going to say it tonight. I would just like to really thank you very much.
0: And that's it. It's a little passive-aggressive, right? Thank you to those who applauded, which is sort of an implication that there are many who didn't applaud. Now, to her credit, in the documentary about Pakula She's really forthcoming about saying, God, if I could go back in time, I mean, of course, I would thank Alan. She's really not beating herself up, but you can tell that it still bothers her uh, that she didn't have this moment of graciousness, perhaps. Uh, Towards Alan, towards Sutherland, she's there with Sutherland. There's a very funny moment in this. uh, There's a featurette on the Criterion of Clute, which is a great conversation where Jane Fonda is with Ileana Douglas, who's a great interviewer and so filmically literate and so Hollywood history literate. There's a great moment where uh, Ileana is asking her sort of an innocuous question about working with Donald Sutherland. And Jane Fonda just like comes, she blurts out like, we had an affair, we had an affair on set. And Ileana's like, oh, oh, no, I wasn't even asking you that. And Jane's like, no, I'm just telling you that that's what was going on. You know, as you heard her say before, she had divorced her husband and, Um, you know, this is, this is, this is a movie set as they say, is it love or location? Another thing talked about a lot in Edswick's book is this closeness, fake closeness in a way of movie set life where you can't imagine that these people you spent three or four months with every day will ever not be in your life. And then you never see them again. (laughs) And I think he has, I think it's his book that has an anecdote about finally asking some, like, some lifer, some Hollywood lifer actor or actress about, I think he was directing a play, maybe. And it's some kind of old time Broadway dame. And I think Zwick's anecdote is, you know. I thought, wow, we're going to be such great friends. We're going to go out for drinks and she's going to regale me with tales of, of real Broadway stories. And at some party or rap party, he kind of got up the courage to ask her why that didn't happen. And her quote was, too many fucking goodbyes. <laughs> such a great story. Too many fucking goodbyes. So she, she took it through experience to realize, I'm not even going to bother getting close because it's all bullshit anyway it's all fake um but to say all that is not to discount Donald Sutherland's great performance in this film because he's doing something not only generous but really brilliant his stillness his his commitment to the 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 moral center of John Clute as an investigator as he as he follows Bree Daniels through this nefarious slice of New York City underworld, um, as he encounters things that he never encounters in his small-town Pennsylvania local cop role, as he falls in love with this character of Brie Daniels um, and is hurt by her and is uh, forced to confront various aspects of uh, his Puritanism, He's so essential to what happens uh, in this film. And I don't think her performance would be as great uh, without Sutherland being as, I don't want to say out of the way, because he's not out of the way as much as he is appropriately pitched and he has such important scenes. Here's a great scene. By the way, there is a great supporting performance from Roy Scheider in this film, which I have to signal out. He's so good. And he's playing that part of Scheider, which is dark and malevolent. And it's great to be able to see him, not in Chief Brody mode, but in something darker. There's a great scene here where Bree brings John Clute to... Scheider, who's her former pimp and protector's apartment. And they have this great exchange. Framing as they get in. I, uh, I was
3: just finishing up some work. Marking up a few photographs. I used to be a photographer, retail. Before I got into publishing. He
4: knows you're a pimp, Frankie. He knows you were my pimp.
3: Excuse me. Bree, why don't you wait outside. Always respected, Bree. I'd like to make something clear. I've just got a couple of questions. Now, I want to make something clear. You know, uh, I don't go after a girl. Girl comes to me. Her choice. Right? Looking for a man, Tom Grinneman. Miss Daniels tells me that. The date that beat her up two years ago might have been that man and that you sent her on that date. Two years ago? Sorry. I understand you use narcotics. Maybe I could have someone come over and look at your arms. You know, I may stand better with the cops than you do. Why don't you sit down and relax?
0: It's just just a great use of Scheider and... When Brie kind of falls apart, falls off a wagon later in the film and is drunk and using drugs, she goes back to Scheider, who's sitting in this elaborate gold throne-like enclosure in a nightclub. And their silent power game plays out where she is so strung out, she crawls back to him and puts her head on his shoulder, and he pulls it-pulls it off of him roughly by grabbing her hair and lets her know he could do that, he could be that way, but he chooses not to. And then he adjusts himself and allows her to settle into him. And then he slowly caresses her. And it's it's this way in which the film shows this cycle of abuse and attraction and repulsion and all of the things that are really uh, eating Bree Daniels alive from the inside out. As she is stalked by this malevolent presence who we come to learn is, is, is the protagonist at the plant that we heard in the opening clip where he's commenting on Grunemann's, you know, Tom did his best work under pressure at the plant. Well, that's the guy that we eventually see listening to these tapes of Bree Daniels. And that we come to learn is the killer that both Bree and Clute are searching for. And that scene that Fonda is talking about at the end of the film is so brilliantly played uh, by, I think his name is John John Chiaffi. He wasn't an actor. Uh, and they play this, you know, again, it's not an action conclusion. It's a It's an emotional devastation conclusion to this film. And he plays her a tape of him murdering her friend. It is so horrible and psychologically awful. And it's so much more affecting than it would be if, as this character would in a lesser movie, he simply attacked her or beat the shit out of her or killed her or any of the other things that we know are the result oftentimes of the lifestyle that she is dabbling in at this point in her life in the film. And what's great is after Clute shows up, um, and saves the day for Brie, there's this great sequence that takes place in her apartment. And as Ileana Douglas says in the featurette, you know, this time of the 70s is kind of a moment where maybe in decades or earlier we had happy endings and maybe later we'd had unhappy endings. But in the 70s, we had these great unresolved endings. That's kind of what we get here.
4: You know, I've, I've explained to him what, what I have to do, and, and I think, you know, I think he understands what, what could ever happen for us. I mean, we're so different, and uh, I mean, I know enough about myself to know that whatever lies in store for me, it's not gonna be uh, setting up housekeeping with somebody in Tuscarora and darning socks and doing all that. I mean, that's just, uh, I'd, I'd go out of my mind.
0: They're in her empty apartment here as she's so hard for
4: me to say it God, preparing to, to leave what, with I'm him. Going to miss him. Was roy well i'm leaving town right now and i i don't expect to be back you're very nice thank you
0: So brilliantly played, so brilliantly filmed.
5: I have no idea what's going to happen. I just, I I can't stay in the city, you know? Maybe I'll come back. You'll probably see me next
0: week. (laughs) That brilliant, ambivalent ending, you'll probably see me next week. Uh, and, and, And Pakula himself said in talking about this film, he doubted very much that given the situation that Brie is coming from and what she's been through, he doubted very much that she and Clute really did have a future together as a couple. Um, But man, the way this film is put together, the way that um, this film is shot and edited, it's just such an impressive piece of filmmaking and it's such an impressive piece of listening as a director From really a screenplay that, you know, I'm not going to say it was set up as a B picture, but, you know, it certainly wasn't on the page what it would become in the hands of Alan Pakula and this incredibly talented group of people that he brought together to work on the film. So I have really done a complete 180 on this film. Um, unlike The Parallax View, The Parallax View is great and notable for different reasons. It's probably Warren Beatty's best film performance, I would say, because it's he's thorny and pushy and unlikable uh, in a great way. His ego is not leading the charge in The Parallax View. As you heard Pakula note, though, The Parallax View is almost his most baroque film in a way. It features this bar brawl. It has explosions on a sailboat. It's totally different than some of the interiorness of these other films that we're talking about. But it is brilliant, and it's got incredible cinematography and an incredible sequence of montage that I really do think it's a film I would like to do on the podcast. So if people are interested in this episode and they want more Pakula, maybe I'll do it in an episode to come in the future. There's a lot more I could say about this. But I want to keep this relatively brief so that you are hopefully inspired to go and revisit Clute. If you do, I recommend checking it out on Criterion. That's the best version of the film. Uh, And it's a stunning, stunning piece of 70s film work that I highly recommend. So as ever, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. And I will be back soon with another episode.